It is good to be back with you, and I am very grateful uh, for the time that my family had for some rest and renewal. Uh, Since we've gotten back, all kinds of things have begun to happen in powerful, powerful ways. Um, Last Tuesday, uh, 13 people got in vans and headed for the airport and flew to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and they've been worshiping God in the desert, and God God has done beautiful things in the desert. If you've been watching it on our church's Facebook pages, Uh, You know what God has been doing, powerful and awesome things out there. We've been getting reports back. Uh, Five students from northern West Virginia have accepted a call to ministry uh, this week while that's been going on. So we're... We are so grateful for that. We need to be praying. They have, they're behind us uh, three hours or so, so they'll be having their last worship service at that conference in a few um, uh, hours here. So we want to be praying for that and praying for a safe journey home. They're going to swing by the Grand Canyon, I think, on the way back. And so we just need to be praying for that. This morning began um, family camp at Summersville, and that'll go from this Sunday through next Sunday. So we want to be praying for powerful, powerful moments in worship there. And, and God gifts us with this awesome moment that we had in worship uh, this morning. What an incredible, loving, and great God we serve. And I'm thankful for all that he's doing in every place that he's doing it. Um, we got to experience some of the grace of God in a, in a sort of a different way. Uh, last Sunday morning, uh, my family visited Hope Community Church of the Nazarene in a suburb, uh, Oregon, Ohio, a suburb of Toledo. That's where our daughter is serving, Sarah, is serving as an intern at that church for this summer. She serves on the Sundays as an intern for that church, and throughout the week she spends a lot of time with a group called Co-Mission that serves several inner-city ministries um, in East Toledo. As we watched her, and she was involved on the platform that day, and we watched her interact with the people, I ought to tell you, I was just absolutely shocked at how grown up she is. Um, I mean, I was just overwhelmed at how grown up she's become. Um, And and then when we came home, and and I got into my office, and I opened the passage of Scripture uh, for this week uh, from the book of James, um, I was reminded of something that she said when she was a very, very little girl. Uh, We were... uh, We were uh, brand new in Oklahoma City. Had only been there for a little while. We were hanging around with some new friends at our new church where I was the new pastor. It was kind of a fun time, and I think Sarah might have been sitting on my lap. She was really small, and she's pretty chattering even at that age. And she just sat up, and somebody laughed. They must know her. Um, (laughs) She sat up, and she she looked like she was going to make an announcement, and she just said to everybody around, One time, my daddy said the S word. I was still pretty new at the church. I looked around and strangely everybody was looking at me. I looked at Sarah and I said, honey, why don't you tell us what the S word is? She sort of raised her shoulders and gave that kind of shy look and sort of stage whispered, Stupid. (laughs) Truth is, it's amazing what some people think is a dirty word. When I was a freshman in college, my my group of guy friends there in the dorm were, were determined to maintain 
our newfound bachelor freedom as long as possible. And so we designated the word love the L word. If you used the L word, I mean the real version, in conjunction with a conversation about a young woman or in a conversation with a young woman, you knew that the minute you hit the door of the dorm, you were going to be dogpiled by like eight guys. Yes, I'm ashamed to say that on a Christian campus, we temporarily banned the word love. We turned it into the L word. Almost anything can become profanity. The S word, the L word. Today we're going to talk about the R word. In many circles, the R word has become profanity. If you embrace the R word, you're likely to be shunned in culture. It'll be a very different kind of shunning, though. If you use the R word, people won't call you vulgar or uncivilized or nasty. If you say you're a part of the R word, people will accuse you of being stodgy or hypocritical or a legalist, all full of hate. No question about it, the R word is becoming profanity. And you may have guessed by now, the R word is religion. I said it. Maybe you've heard a popular Christian personality or some super spiritual friend say something like, I'm not into religion, I'm just into relationship. You'll probably hear that more and more often. 23% of all adults claim no religious affiliation at all in this country, and 34 to 36% of young adults claim no religious affiliation at all. And those are massive increases of percentages over the past 20 years. Religion has become the R word. We know why. Nobody wants to be involved in something that's just dead ritual, just motions people go through, but that's not the only reason why. Awful things have been done in the name of religion. Everyone knows the religious motivations of terrorist attacks. Muslim extremists have killed thousands. Add to that the checkered history of, of groups that called themselves Christians and who persecuted people because they didn't believe the same way that they did. Not to mention the fact that right now the secular world sees religious political action as just a massive selfish power grab by people who were involved in religion. We're at the point in history where many in our culture look at religions, all of them, the very same way, with disdain. Religion itself has become the R word. But at the same time, spirituality is incredibly popular. More spirituality books sell now than at ever at any point in history. What our culture seems to be saying to us is that faith should be a private matter. Believe what you want, just don't display it outwardly in any way that anyone could ever see. I'm not into religion. I'm just into relationship. Religion's become the R word. But just the same, the book of James 
has something to say about the R word. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 27. James, chapter 1, verse 27. Let's stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. It says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Father, I pray that the beautiful and wonderful spirit that we have sensed as we've worshipped you in song today would come and continue to remain and speak deeply to our hearts as we walk around in the Word this morning. Lead us and guide us and direct us. Change us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Yes, it's the R word, but James, James wants to talk about religion. According to scholar Jeannie Sorrell, religion in this passage of Scripture means, well, it means the external practice of faith. It means that part of faith that people can see when they look into our lives. When we think about religion that can be seen, the outward expressions of faith, we kind of think about what we're doing today. We think about waking up on the weekend, heading to a building that's set aside for religious purposes, spending time in a room with a great big cross, singing and praying and opening up the Scripture. When we think about religion that can be seen, we think about worship. And the truth is, worship is an incredibly good thing. It's vital all throughout Scripture, we're called to remember, to meet together, and to encourage one another to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, to preach the Word, to hear the Word. It's vital. But James sort of assumes religious people will be doing things like that. When James wants to talk about religion that is pure and undefiled, he assumes worship, and then he talks about what we do after we worship. We heard a few weeks ago from James chapter 1, verse 22, be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. Contrary to popular opinion, that means religion. The actions that we take in faith, they matter a lot. Jesus himself said, let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So what does the world see of the church right now? How is our religion visible? Political action, carrying signs, angry posts on social media? James blows right past all that stuff. And what he says isn't an exhaustive list, but he, he speaks of two really important things. Two really important parts of religion that is pure and undefiled before God. First, James says that religion is to take care of or look after or visit widows and orphans in their distress. This passage reminds me of a very, very difficult conversation I had when I was a brand new youth pastor, very, very young, right out of college. The mother of two teenage girls in my youth group sat in front of me fighting a losing battle to hold back tears. 
She told me that she became a single mother just a couple of years before that when her husband suddenly died and left her and her two, her and her two girls alone. She had a good job. They were making it okay in that regard. But she said, coming to church is incredibly difficult, Pastor. She said, I stand in the lobby after worship and other families with teens make plans to go out to dinner and spend some time together that afternoon. And with me standing right there and maybe my girls around us somewhere, the invitation doesn't come to me. We used to go out and eat lunch with the same people all the time. The only difference I can think of is the fact that I don't have a husband anymore. And that means I don't have any connection anymore. To lose that connection changes absolutely everything about life. One less income brings financial jeopardy. A widow in James' day was immediately vulnerable because there was really no social network whatsoever to support her. There was no protection at all. Nowadays, that isn't the worst of it. Losing an everyday companion makes loneliness just hang like a cloud over every part of life. And I'm told by my friends who've been married 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years, when it happens after that long, you just don't even know how to do the day-to-day of life by yourself. It changes everything from household rhythm to casual conversations to how you connect with other people. Literal death makes people into widows or widowers. But the Bible tells us that sin brings a death-like existence into the everyday of life. You see, infidelity and addiction and divorce make people into cultural widows. People who once knew companionship but now travel alone without the support they once had. Folks, according to the book of James, this is where religion and relationship go hand in hand. True religion is taking care of those who grieve the loss of relationship no matter how they lost it, whether they're literally widowed or culturally so. In the book of Ephesians, Paul calls the church the bride of Christ. That means that whether you're married or single or divorced or widowed, we live in relationship together with Jesus Christ, who is head over heels in love with absolutely every one of us. True religion looks like all of us doing the visible stuff we have to do to make sure that everybody knows they're in. They're in. True religion looks like giving the lonely one a call, paying a visit, meeting them for lunch, finding someone in the lobby and saying, would you sit with me? Offering to help with something around the house. True religion is taking care of the vulnerable, literal and cultural widows. And orphans. Tragically, children become orphans because their parents die. We see that sometimes. But our world produces cultural orphans too. 
We've heard about children being separated from parents at the border because of our broken immigration system that nobody seems willing or able to fix. More of that may happen today, I don't know for sure, but much less famous is all the other cultural orphans in the world. Separated from parents because of addiction or mental illness or incarceration or, or some other thing. According to the book of James, how we respond to children who are separated from their parents determines whether our religion is pure or not. While we were gone, we spent some time with Erla's oldest sister, Lana. I've probably mentioned her a few times before. She raised her four biological children, and when they were teenagers, she was a labor and delivery nurse at a downtown hospital, complete with a trauma unit and all the, the things that go with that. She met and befriended a mother who was just not capable of giving care to her children. So Lana, Erla's oldest sister, took in that woman's four children. Those four children have now grown up, and now Lana is raising two of their children along with two other little boys that Lana has adopted. If I have the numbers right, and it's a little bit hard to add it all up, I think she has raised her four biological children and eight children that she's either adopted or given foster care through through their entire development. That's 12 caring for literal and cultural orphans. James says that's what true religion looks like. Well, we call ourselves Christians. Have you raised your 12 yet? Do we all have to do that? Earl's sister Lana doesn't raise those kids by herself. She married a man who loves to help her with that mission, and they're a part of a great, powerful church that comes alongside and gives assistance. <laughs> it's the interesting thing about Lana. She knows what we ought to know, and she knows it better than we know it. You see, Erla has herself and three other siblings, and Lana is the one who's adopted. Lana knows she's adopted, and so she's poured out her life helping other kids to know that reality in their lives. Here's the interesting thing. Every one of us have been adopted into the family of God. We have just as much motivation as she does if we truly believe the word of God that we say we believe. So have you raised your 12 yet? <laughs> She doesn't, she doesn't raise them by herself. She has lots of help from a church full of people who've been adopted into the family of God themselves. One of the pastors of co-mission where our daughter Sarah is serving this summer is, is kind of a math head a little bit, and he's, he's figured out the numbers of it. And what he's basically learned is that if every church in the Toledo area, if three families from every church in the Toledo area, or an average of three families from every church in the Toledo area, would give care and adopt a child, they would have no one left in the foster care system. 
I'm not much of a math head, that's Erla, but when I heard that, I started doing the math and, and got on the internet. I, I can't find the statistics for Parkersburg, but I did for West Virginia. There are like 6,300 children in foster care in the state of West Virginia. And there are 4,000 churches in the state of West Virginia. What that means is if two families from every church, or an average of two families from every church in West Virginia, was to, was to give care to a child, we'd run out of kids in the foster care system in this state. If God calls you to take in a youngster, you know what it means? It means everybody in this room has an opportunity to step away from the R word and to embrace true religion as we help you raise them up to be followers of Jesus. According to the book of James, true religion is first about taking care of widows and orphans, those who are really vulnerable in our culture, no matter how they got that way, no matter what made them vulnerable, true religion is taking care of them. But he also talks about something else. He says that religion that is pure and undefiled is to keep oneself unstained by the world. Some people who have attended church a long time seem to have this one down. Maybe you kicked the habits a long, long time ago and you've not displayed any outward physical sins for quite some time. Maybe you got religion really young and you never picked up any bad habits throughout your life that made people wonder about your faith. Those are very good things. To model the kind of faith that shows a freedom from the bondage of sin is something that we're called to in our world. Our world needs to see people of the church living in the kind of victory that only God can give. I'm privileged to know many people who walk in freedom from obvious outward sin. And I also know a number of people who take care of vulnerable people like widows and orphans. But I want to ask you a question. How many people do you know right now who do both of those things well? How many people do you know right now who do both of those things well? How many people do you know who are always caring for the widows and the orphans and who keep themselves unstained by the world? You see, too often, religious people choose between those two things. It's been that way for a very long time. In James' day, Jewish uh, religion had outward expressions of their faith, and that meant keeping purity and dietary laws. It meant washing their hands a special way. It meant not eating with people who didn't wash their hands a special way. Those rules created a cultural divide between Jews and Gentiles. They were separated socially so they wouldn't be stained by their neighbors. It seemed to me that they had to make a choice. Either keep the dietary and social laws or reach the Gentiles with the love of Jesus. Some Jewish Christians thought the best way to respond to that was to force the Gentiles to act like Jews and, and adopt all the ritual laws before they could come to faith in Jesus. 
either keep the dietary and social purity laws or reach the Gentiles. But other Jewish Christians like Paul and like James did not require the dietary laws. When James and Paul talked about purity, they boiled everything down and they made it real simple. They just said, avoid idols and sexual immorality. That widow who came to me when I was a youth pastor, she actually named that one. She said, I know why I don't get the invitations anymore. I get it. The husbands in those families don't want to be appropriately, inappropriately friendly to me in my situation. And, and the wives in those families, they want to protect their marriages. I get that. She said, Pastor Dan, I would never steal anyone's husband. I just need some friends. That woman was right to think about that. We hear stories all the time of religious people who get tempted to take advantage of vulnerable people they're supposed to be taken care of. We hear stories about that all the time. When someone's become vulnerable because of a death or some other devastation, life gets messy. Relationships get messy. And if our goal is keeping ourselves unstained by the world, it seems that we, we better keep our distance and not get very close. So where religion is concerned, some people are pretty good at keeping their lives unstained by the world and other people are pretty good at taking care of people who are vulnerable like widows and orphans. The truth is if you push it a step further, some churches are pretty good at keeping their lives unstained by the world and other churches are pretty good at taking care of the vulnerable like widows and orphans. We usually choose one or the other, and I think that's why religion has become a dirty word. But the Word of God in the book of James won't let us choose. He pushes us past the R word kind of life that says either I'm going to care for the vulnerable or I'm going to keep my life unstained, and James says true religion is both taking care of the vulnerable widows and orphans and keeping oneself unstained by the world. It's both. So, so how does one care for those who are the most vulnerable to the mess of the world and still stay unstained by the mess of the world? If you've been listening this summer, you know that the book of James, well, it practically demands a whole lot of very, very difficult things. Frankly, it can be incredibly overwhelming to just read through the book of James and all the things it calls us to. As we read James, it's absolutely crucial to remember that James assumes something that James doesn't really say. James assumes that we're aware of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus that gives us the power of salvation and the power for true religion that the world will actually see 
as authentic. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, Jesus happened on a town called Nan. At the city gates, he met a funeral procession. The young man who had died, who the procession was for, he was an orphan of sorts. His mother was living, but his father had already died. So his mother was there, and she was a widow who had now lost her only son. In her culture, she was the ultimate invulnerable. No safety net to care for her. She had no one to provide for her and no one to protect her. She wailed with the crowd of people as she followed her son's body. This processional had no line of cars with lights on and no shiny Cadillac for a hearse. It was a line of people following a funeral buyer. It's really just a fancy stretcher open for all the world to see the body of the one who died. For us, we just think that's just shocking. It was so shocking for them that the Jewish religious law said that anyone who carried that body, anyone who touched that body, anyone who got any contact with that body would be unclean for a certain period of time until they could go through a cleanliness ritual. Everyone carrying that body was going to be unclean and they had to go through the ritual. If you touched a dead body, you would be stained by death. Death would get on you. The whole scene affected Jesus deep in his heart. The scripture says that Jesus had compassion on that grieving widow. He looked at her and he said, do not weep. Then he walked up and he touched the body on the buyer. Uh-oh. Jesus is going to be stained by death. Jesus is going to be unclean. Uh, no. After that touch, Jesus said to the young man, I say to you, rise. He sat up and he started talking and Jesus presented him back to his mother Instead of Jesus catching death and the stain of death from the orphan, the orphan caught life from Jesus. Jesus did the same thing more than once with lepers. Culturally, they were widows and they were orphans. If you got that disease, it was thought that you had sinned or someone in your family has sinned and that's why you got it and you were immediately cut off of all relationship. You were an orphan, you were a widow, you were a widower and so was your whole family because they were without you. Touching them meant you were touching the most alone and the most vulnerable in the whole culture. And touching them meant you were unclean. Touching them should have made Jesus stained and unclean with the leprosy and the sin they believed caused it. He should have had to go through a ceremonial washing and wait to be in contact with anyone else. But when Jesus touched lepers, instead of him becoming unclean, they were cleansed. 
James says true religion is taking care of the vulnerable people like orphans and widows and keeping oneself unstained by the world. That's religion. That's the outward display of our faith. But folks, it only works if the inward part of faith is alive and well. If we're going to touch people whose lives become clean rather than ours becoming stained, if we're going to touch people whose spirits spring to life rather than us embracing the death of this world, we've got to have the life-giving, world-transforming, heart-cleansing, powerful presence of Jesus filling our hearts and our lives to the fullest. So that when we touch the vulnerable, Jesus touches them. If we don't have that inward presence of the Holy Spirit of Jesus with us, all our, all our faith stuff is just the R word. James says true religion is taking care of the vulnerable people like widows and orphans and keeping oneself unstained by the world. <laughs> I find it interesting that when James wants to talk about true religion, he doesn't ever mention formally witnessing to anyone. How does caring for the vulnerable and helping our life or keeping our life clean before God win people to Jesus anyway? This week I read about a man named Jack. He'd been president of a large corporation and then he got cancer. They ruthlessly dumped him from his job. He went through his insurance and he used his life savings and he had practically nothing left. A man named Larry Richards and then another good friend of Larry's at their church found out about the man and visited him. Larry's friend, the other man, was quite bold, actually. He spoke up and he said, Jack, you speak all the time about how little time you have left on this earth. I wonder if you're prepared for, for your life after death. As weak as he was, Jack stood up and was livid with rage. He said, you blankety-blank Christians, all you ever think about is what's going to happen to me after I die. If your God is so great, why can't he do something about what's going on in life right now? He went on to tell them that he was leaving his wife penniless, and his daughter had no money and no way for, to go to college. He ordered them out of his house. About two weeks later, Larry didn't want to go, but his friend, the bold guy, talked him into going back anyway. He just insisted, you've got to go back with me. You were there before. So they went back. The friend said, Jack, I, I know that I offended you, and I humbly apologize for that. But I want you to know that I've been busy since our last conversation. Your first problem is where your family will live after you die. A realtor in our church has agreed to sell your house and give your wife the commission. 
I guarantee you that if you'll permit us to, some of the other men and I will pay the payments on that house until it sells. I also contacted the owner of an apartment building just down the street, and he's agreed to give your wife the use of a three-bedroom apartment there and an $850 a month salary if she'll just move in and work part-time to collect rents and manage that and also manage the scheduling of the repair people that come by. The income of your house, we've checked, it should pay for your daughter's college. I just want you to know, your family's cared for. Jack cried like a baby. He died shortly after that. So wrapped up in pain, none of them ever heard him make a formal profession of faith. But he did experience God's love. And he wasn't the only one. His widow was so touched by the caring of that church and all the Christians that she met there that she gave her life to Christ. And so did Jack's daughter. Religion that is pure and undefiled is taking care of the vulnerable. Widows, orphans, those who have found themselves on the outside looking in. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. Folks, that only works if the life of Jesus is so filling us and so potent within us that he affects the world through us. We sang it this morning. Holiness is Christ in me. We walk out into a messy world full of folks who are vulnerable to the mess, and we walk out with the fullness of the presence of Jesus in us, and it's Jesus who touches them. And life springs up. I'm going to invite our praise team to come and to lead us in a song this morning. When James talks about religion that is pure and undefiled, he always talks about, or he talks about what we do after we worship. But here's the thing. In order for us to be able to minister to the most vulnerable and to keep ourselves unstained by the world, it really matters what happens right here. We've got to be filled with the heart-cleansing, life-changing, life-giving power and presence of the Holy Spirit of Jesus so that we carry around in us holiness the character of God who longs to change the world let's stand together this morning I want us to take an opportunity to just to just pray and to sing and to worship God is here today and he longs to equip us to make our faith not just a human commandment learned by rote, not just what the world wants to call the R word, but what they can look at and they can see as authentically Christ-like.
Holy Spirit of God is here today looking to fill you with His Spirit. If you'd like to come and pray, the altars are open. The world needs us to get beyond the R word to true religion. Let's worship the Lord today.